I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. One of the scions of the Yeste Lauder Cosmetics Company, he's a successful businessman, an influential art collector, a generous philanthropist, and one of the Jewish world's most important leaders. But he wasn't always so involved in Jewish life. Until his experience as the ambassador to post-war Austria changed him. And as Ronald Otter points out, there aren't enough people willing to step up and fill the leadership vacuum. Ambassador Lauder, thank you for coming. It's so good to have you with us. It's an honor for us that you're with us today. I'm delighted to be here. I've been to Europe several times, to Central Europe and Eastern Europe and uh Everywhere we go in terms of the Jewish community, there's something that you supported, that you created, something about Jewish life that was very impressive. Wherever we went, we would talk to people and they would say, well, Ambassador Lauder, he supports this. What brought you to wanting to be so active and so supportive of Jewish life? And was there something about your upbringing that did that or or was it something that occurred later in life? I grew up as a assimilated Jew. For me, I was a three-day-a-year Jew, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Passover. Interesting enough, I learned Yiddish when I was 18 years old. I spoke German and French before that, and I learned Yiddish just for, I have no idea, the fascination of it. But I was always fascinated by two things. What happened during World War II and why the Jewish people were not able to leave and what went on. And what I saw was a great deal of latent anti-Semitism. But I put that aside. I decided that I wanted, what I wanted to be, perhaps, is in government or political life. And it wasn't until I was in the Pentagon that I started to see what was really happening to the Jewish people, and particularly to Israel. You were working in the Pentagon? Yes, I was in the Pentagon as Deputy Assistant Secretary of defense, mainly for Europe and NATO policy. This was during the Reagan administration between 83 and, end of 82, end of 82, beginning of 83 and 86. So you spent three years in the Pentagon. And what you saw surprised you and disturbed you? What I saw and what I learned about Israel and what I learned about Europe, it was positive and negative, positive in the sense where the amount of relationship between Israel and the rest of Europe was very, very good, but there was still a lot of quiet anti-Semitism. But I had never been to Israel, and in 1984-85, I cannot remember the exact year, there was a NATO meeting, which I went to, and then Secretary of State Caspar Weinberger said, Mr. Lauder, we're going to the Middle East, and we're going to several places in Israel, and I know this is something very close to you. I said, Mr. Secretary, let me tell you, I've never been to Israel. And how old were you at that time? Um, in my 40s, 43, I guess. We stopped first in Tunisia, and then into Egypt, and then into Israel. And... There was a certain magic that I know all people who've been to Israel feel. Be a Jew and non-Jew who come there and it blows you away. Because I felt all of a sudden, there it was. 
And I loved it. I loved everything about it. And um, coming with the government, my government, I saw everything. And some things I even perhaps shouldn't have seen. But the fact is that it, it changed me somewhat because I all of a sudden looked at Israel as a Jew and I became more sensitive to it. A year later, or two years later, I was asked, would I be interested to be a U.S. ambassador to Austria? And I agreed to. And at that time, there was a man called Kurt Waldheim, who, was, who just left Secretary General of the United Nations. And it turned out, interesting, found by the World Jewish Congress, that he wasn't a lawyer sitting in Vienna during the war, but he was an intelligence officer working for the Wehrmacht and was very much involved in people getting killed. He was running for president of Chancellor of Austria. So he was still running for chancellor when you arrived as our He, he had just started to run. Mm-hmm. I listened to the speech he made on the Stephansplatz when he said, I did nothing wrong. I did nothing different than your husbands or your brothers or your nephews or your children. And he won. When he won the inauguration, I could not go to it. I could not do it. So I said, I'm not going to it. And I left. This was your decision, not the American government's decision. No, the American government was against it. The only one who supported me was Secretary of State George Shultz. He said, that's the right decision. Good luck. Came back, and I became an outspoken critic of him and the, and the fact that Austria was not the first victim by a co-conspirator with Nazi Germany. And obviously, they were very upset with me, especially the State Department, even though its top person gave me permission. A man who was the head of the Jewish community, an old man, came to me in my office. He said, I'm dying, and would you consider being more involved in Jewish life after I die? I said, look, I know as much about the Jewish life as the God downstairs, and I can't do it. He says, maybe you'll find a way. Then a few days later, I was going on one of the streets. It's called Temple Gasa. Mm-hmm. This is in Vienna. This is in Vienna. Yeah. When I was in Vienna, there was a big sort of building missing. It, was a bit, it, was, it, was, it wasn't even a parking lot. It was just a big hole in it. I told the car to stop. I was interested in what was there. So I asked about four or five people who was walking down, what was there? Nobody had an answer. They had no idea. Finally, an older man came by, and I said, what was there? He's one of the most beautiful synagogues you've mm-hmm. ever seen. I said, look, I've asked four or five people, and they didn't know anything about it. He said, they knew they're embarrassed to tell you. So... I wanted to see what the Temple Gasa looked like. A few days later, and called Rabbi Jacob Biederman, who's still there today, um, came in, came to my office with plans of how it looked, which, which was a beautiful synagogue. And in the process, he said, look, I've been sent here by the Rebbe, and 
I have a small school for Russian Jewish kids who are, whose family were coming from Russia through Vienna to Israel, but decided not to go to Israel, but stay in Vienna. I went to see the school, and what happened is I saw kids, Jewish kids, I looked at them and I said, there by the grace of God go I. And I remember how many, many people, even Jewish people, turned their backs on people from Eastern Europe in 1938 when they were trying to get out. So I said, can I help you with the school? And he said, yeah, and that was my first school. And it was finished just when I was leaving Vienna. When I went to Budapest, the families came and said, you built a beautiful school in Vienna, can you build one for us? We have 120,000 people here, and of which we have five or 10,000 kids. So I agreed to do a second school. And then a third in Poland. Today, big and small, we have 30, 35 schools in Eastern Europe, and one in Italy and one in um, Greece. It's amazing. I, I've been to many of those uh, centers and educational centers, and it's just amazing. I didn't know the uh, background that this was kind of a result of your time in Austria, <clears throat> and in particular that one elderly Jew. I think we all owe him a tremendous debt of gratitude if if he played a role in inspiring you. And the second person that did was a man who is one of my closest friends and mentors, Rabbi Haskell Besser. He was working with me every day. We had offices next to each other. And over a period of 30 years, we have these 35 schools. We have graduated somewhere between 30 and 40,000 Jewish kids. And my reason being, as I said to the world, Hitler did not win. Um, because there's Jewish life. And today, in all the cities in Eastern Europe, there's Jewish life there. There are people going to synagogues, it's happening. It started me very much with my foundation, building the schools, and getting involved in Jewish life. I first joined, I became president of Jewish National Fund. I then went to Cops of Presidents as president of presidents. This is the time, I believe, there was a Carter administration I believe, who wanted to divide Jerusalem. I went there, I made a speech on the walls of Jerusalem. Myself, Sharansky, and Adrian Oman, who was then mayor. And we had 400,000 people come from all over Israel to listen. And it started me very, very much more and more involved in Jewish life. Interesting, when I came back, there were a lot of the questions people were asking. How can I give a speech without discussing it with a conference? I said, very simple. If I asked you your advice, they would, you would never let me go. So, you know, we have, if anything, a more challenging environment than we did when you were growing up. Uh, the level of Jewish illiteracy is substantial and widespread. Certainly, of course, in the non-Orthodox American Jewish community, and you're part of that. What have you learned that will help us to inject pride and confidence and Jewish literacy in younger American Jews who might not see any reason to embrace Judaism in any way? Jewish life 
or a young person has to start either in the home, but today this is the fourth generation since the Holocaust, and most homes don't talk about that. It's just, you're an American, period. And there's not much taught about Judaism. And today, um, only about 5% or 7% of children, Jewish children, go to Jewish schools. You mean day schools, full-time day schools. Full-time day schools. And one of the things I'm going to be doing is I'm working very hard now to build more Jewish day schools. One of the issues, by the way, in schools I've seen more and more is the cost. Most families can't afford the twenty twenty-five thousand dollars a year. What I'm looking to do is find a way for a scholarship program for gifted children who want to go to school. And we have many, many very wealthy people who can just put a certain amount of money aside. First of all, thank you on for the Jewish community on on that behalf. I'm a big believer in Jewish day schools, of course. At the same time, what is your response to the demographic reality that most American Jews are not and probably will not learn in day schools. So what do we do with them? That's the question we are, we are wrestling with. They can't get into college, and it's a danger. It's a danger of assimilation, a danger of mixed marriages. And we have to find the right solution. What I have done... I started in Russia, many small towns. Rather than trying to build a school because there wasn't enough money, there wasn't enough time, I've been building kindergartens. And once you get a child in a kindergarten and learning, you have a leg up and everything. And one of the things I think we have to do in America, and I'm looking into this now, is increase the number of kindergartens for children as a way of starting. My two daughters went to kindergarten at a place called Christ Church. Christ Church, half or two-thirds of the kids were Jewish. It wasn't anything about Catholic, but it was was just a name. But there's no question that if they went to a Jewish school, Jewish kindergarten, it would have given them some grounding. I know that you and I have uh, spoken before, and you've expressed some constructive criticism about synagogues in general and reform synagogues in particular. I personally feel that if the issue is Jewish continuity, and that is the key issue for American Jewry looking into the future, the way to address that, in my opinion, the three central institutions of American Jewish life to address the issue of Jewish continuity, there are a whole bunch of other issues that are important to American Jewry as well. But of course, None of these organizations will exist if we don't raise generations of American Jews who believe in Judaism and embrace Judaism and want it to continue and perpetuate. So I believe that the three main institutions of American Jewish life where we are able to instill this kind of identity are day schools, synagogues, and summer camps. I'll give you a fourth. Israel. I've always felt that identification with Israel is the byproduct, the function of identification with Judaism. That American Jews, whether they're critical of this government or that government's policies, they identify with Israel if they have a strong Jewish identity. If they don't, then they are much more susceptible to distancing from Israel. My Jewish identity 
had nothing to do with Israel. For some, that's true. But for most people, Israel's far off, distant land. And there is very little chance people have today to interact with it. Under my parents' generation, everybody gave money to Israel, was part of different organizations. That was it. Today, it's not the case. But there's one of the words you were using before that interests me very much. That's the word leadership. Today, as we had in Europe in the 1930s, we have a lack of leadership. It used to be the rabbis and the wealthy person in town. That was the leaders. What's happened over the years is that rabbis have played less and less of a role, and the wealthy people who used to be the leaders of the community find themselves putting their money and their efforts not into synagogues and hospitals and schools, but into other things because they were easily accepted. And they want to be accepted by society. So we do have a great crisis of leadership. So do, do you feel that rabbinic leadership in terms of its quality has declined because talented Jews are going to other professions and doing other things in 21st century America? Or do you think they're less supported by people who have affluence because they want to put their money in different places? What, what do you think is going it's, on? It's all in the above. Basically, there's not one thing. But again, the rabbi plays much less of a role than they used to. Is that a good thing in your view? I don't think it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We want our rabbis to be rabbis. What we do want is wealthy Jews to be involved in what's going on. And why aren't they to your satisfaction? Because the fact that society today doesn't look to a man, or woman for that matter, who gives money to a synagogue as an important aspect, mm -hmm. where if they give the same money to a museum, mm -hmm. they're, they're accepted much differently. How do you change that? I don't know. I'm thinking about it, but I realize that's a problem. And if you say Jewish people and you say, we've done this, in survey after survey, name me five leaders of the Jewish people in America. They couldn't do it. They couldn't even give you three, or two, or one. I know that to be the case. I've actually researched that with professional researchers, and what they do know is exactly what you say. What they do mention is their local rabbi, that the rabbi of their synagogue is their leader. They don't want to say nobody, so they give the name. But very often, if you ask them, what's the name of your rabbi, they may not know. <laughs> and tell me about what he said last week, or well, where does he stand? I I'm interested in your critique. Most, most American Jews are not Orthodox. Probably no more than 15% of American Jews define themselves as Orthodox. So the overwhelming majority are either going to acquire their Jewish identity from us, from the non-Orthodox, and I'm a reform rabbi, or not at all. And so I want to go back and ask you, what should we be doing differently? Uh, you, you, you know the Jewish community well. You know the reform movement well. What do you think we're doing well, and what do you think we need to improve on? The reform movement has to really have 
strong leaders in it that everybody knows. Very often the leaders in the reform movement are only known by their immediate surroundings. And they don't have the ammunition to reach out to people. They should have a budget they can talk to. They should be able to podcast. They should be working on different things to see and know. And some of the reform rabbis I've met have been superb, superb. And yet, if you ask people around, they don't know them. And the only time they met the rabbi is during the bar mitzvah or marriage. And one of the reasons we have so many people, 50, 60% of our kids are intermarried. But the real aspect is today between intermarriage, assimilation, lack of strong leadership, and lack of education, we have a problem. And I look at it very much as like trying to get trying to get dressed running for the bus. I wanted to ask you about Israel. It seems to us that there is a greater distancing from Israel in this generation than in previous generations, especially among younger people. Do you find that to be true? And if so, why do you think that's the case? And if that's the case, then what do you think we can do about it? A, it is the case. And B, and one of the things I've been very, very critical of Israel about is that in past governments, you've had a very religious section there and have made Jews feel that unless they're Orthodox, they're not good Jews. I know we still don't have a place to pray at the wall. And what we have to do is make Israel a place where young, all the young people who have been there stay there. So you think the onus on the distancing that is real, in your view, between American Jews and Israel is primarily on Israel? Absolutely, because Israel has the power to do it, and it doesn't happen. It doesn't, they don't know how to reach out there. It's not only a matter of Hasbara, of communication, though. I mean, you yourself mentioned that, for example, when it comes to not recognizing other forms of Judaism, it's Israeli policy that is the obstacle. Yeah, but it's also that Israel is very comfortable with their 7 million Jews, but they don't realize that their future is not about the 7 million Jews in Israel. It's about the Jews in the diaspora, another 7 million, who are the ones who stand up to governments and talk. And without having people in each country, Jews representing that country, representing Israel, what do we have? Now, I'm giving you some of the, but the question is, the world still respects Israel enormously, but it's not the same as reaching out. Ronald Lauder is a fascinating example of how one person can make such a huge, positive difference to Jewish life. His philanthropy supports many critical Jewish organizations intended to deepen Jewish commitment and strengthen Jewish life. I've had many conversations with Ambassador Lauder. He speaks with great concern and with passion about Jewish dignity and Jewish posterity. He puts his time and efforts and resources where his mouth is. He has zeroed in on the critical Jewish institutions, Jewish schools, Jewish camps, synagogues. 
the institutions that are most responsible for instilling the strongest possible Jewish identity in the next generation of our people. And it's quite amazing, because remember, he himself didn't come to Judaism or to the organized Jewish community in any kind of serious way until his 40s, in his own words. He was a three-day-a-week Jew. As he told us, it was only during his ambassadorship in Austria that Ron Lauder began devoting so much of his life to Jewish causes. He has led, with great success, multiple and critical Jewish organizations. His is a remarkable story. It's noteworthy to me that many of the projects that Ambassador Lauder either created or strengthened through the sweat of his brow and the intensity of his will, like rabbinical seminaries and synagogues, many of these institutions that he supports so generously are orthodox, not reform. Still, as a liberal Jew, I am nonetheless deeply appreciative because we do not have enough donors to Jewish causes, especially to those institutions that will make or break the future of American Jewry, synagogues first and foremost, and also schools and summer camps. We need to get our act together in the Jewish community. Swimming in a Jewish swimming pool doesn't make you Jewish. Exercising in a Jewish gym doesn't make you Jewish. Eating at a Chinese restaurant on Christmas Eve doesn't make you Jewish. Sustained Jewish identity over a lifetime, observing Jewish festivals in any meaningful way, engagement with Jewish texts, Jewish study, and understanding of Jewish values, these are the tools of Jewish survival. My experience as a rabbi for over 30 years, during which time I have been engaged in daily fundraising for the organizations I have led, is that while I have met and received the generous support of many amazing people, and liberal Jews are no less generous than conservatively-minded Jews. Liberal Jews tend to give less to Jewish causes, especially to efforts connected with Israel and Jewish peoplehood. I'll never forget my visit to Ann Arbor, Michigan one Thanksgiving year. There's really only one thing to do in Ann Arbor on Thanksgiving, attend the Ohio State-Michigan football game. It seemed to me that all the locals think about during the entire autumn is how many more days to the football game. And if you have to ask what football game, you're already irrelevant. 113,496 people attended the game in the freezing cold. Tens of thousands were students from both universities, but tens of thousands more were adults. I was sitting next to two geezers in their 80s, brothers, who were hollering and jumping up and down as if their knees and hips had not been recently reconstructed. Somehow, they recaptured 50 years of lost vitality during those four hours, and then, stumbled out of the stadium with their walkers and canes, exhausted by the excitement. High university officials hosted tailgate parties for state and national politicians. Major donors were wined and dined in toasty sweets. The intense loyalty generated by the universities of Michigan and Ohio State was something to behold. The goodwill and gratitude that result from spending just, what, one-twentieth of our lives in these great universities often last a lifetime. And I remember thinking, why this unbounded affection for our alma maters even decades later? What is the secret? If I could figure out what generates lifetime loyalties for universities, maybe I can find a way to replicate that loyalty for synagogues and Jewish life generally. Why do four years of education at Michigan generate such intense emotions in so many people? And 13 years of education in our synagogues generate in all too many people a desire to leave after the last child's bar mitzvah. I am intrigued, and I admit, envious, of universities who can 
pry out of the alumni such stunning financial contributions. And we, who seek to attend to people for a lifetime, rejoice with them, weep with them, mourn with them, strengthen them, educate them, why can't we generate anywhere near the same emotional attachment that would translate into similar financial support? Why is the need to give so generously to a university self-evident to so many? while it is so hard to convince those very same people to give as generously, or at all, to Jewish causes. Since I have always believed that money follows values, our attachments come first, and money follows these attachments, I often think to myself, imagine if we could generate in our people a similar sense of gratitude. We'd be in an entirely different place. We would have a much better shot at sustaining Jewish life for the present and the future. And make no mistake, the main pitch of universities to their alumni is the future. At its core, the essential fundraising message of universities is give and give generously so we can do for the next generation what we did for you. Just to share a sense of the numbers, that year that I visited Michigan, the university was in the midst of a $4 billion fundraising campaign. $4 billion. One university. And the central message of the campaign was the future. A gift to the endowment is a gift that keeps on giving, was the pitch. The university specified that $1 billion, 25% of the hoped-for take, would go to student scholarships for the future. The university recruits students themselves to appeal to alumni. One of them said, I want other students to have the same help I had in coming here. As the then Michigan president emphasized, University of Michigan donors have always understood the importance of private gifts to the success of the university. So I was thinking, why not in Jewish life? Why not in synagogues? Why don't Jews, alumni of synagogues that made them Jewish, taught them, instilled in them a sense of Jewishness? Why don't they understand the importance of private gifts to the success of the community? Why do the very same people, the same Jews, who feel such intense loyalty to the next generation of Michigan students, not seem to care, or care as much, about this and the next generation of synagogue students? Why don't they feel a similar sense of gratitude? Why is it not self-evident to them? From generation to generation to generation, this is the inevitable, ineluctable cycle of life. If one generation ceases to care about the next one, the chain of life breaks and the cycle ends. They know that at universities. Do we? Until next time, this is In These Times. <laughs>